following lecture was produced by the Gnostic Academy of Chicago, a nonprofit organization, and is one of many available for podcast, download, and transcription. You can visit chicagonosis.org to find courses, articles, scriptures, commentaries, and other valuable resources that address a wide variety of spiritual subjects, interests, and needs. Through the generous support of listeners like you, the Gnostic Academy of Chicago has produced online courses, lectures, and articles freely available worldwide. If you have benefited from this knowledge, help humanity through making a tax-deductible donation at chicagonosis.org. If you are interested in attending the Gnostic Academy of Chicago in person, you may view our online class schedule and freely register at meetup.com slash chicagonosis. The Chicagoland Gnostic Academy provides humanity with the necessary means for transforming suffering and acquiring personal knowledge of the divine. With this purpose in mind, we now begin the lecture. May all beings be happy. As evidenced by this great work of art, we will discover how Puccini, as a great master of Freemasonry, was an initiate of the straight path, the direct path of the Bodhisattva, those who incarnate Christ in order to help humanity to sacrifice for humanity. His particular focus in his last work of art that he composed is to talk about the Divine Mother. As evidenced by the name Turandot, which reminds us of the the Nordic runes. As we began this Lecture, we practice the rune Ur, the mantra Ram Iyo. Ur we find in Tur Rando, and the mantra Ram Iyo is found with Ra and O, the vowels and syllables of this name. Ur is light, the divine, which in heaven is known as Kundalini. But when that energy is channeled within the ego, it is Kunda Buffer. This opera teaches us this precise duality of the nature of that divine force, which when it is purified, liberates the soul. But when it is fed through desire, through fornication, becomes the tempting serpent of Eden, which was something we find symbolized in the great dramas of this opera, particularly Act 1, of which we're going to focus today. Even the name Turandot, syllabically, reminds us of Tiforet, the human soul. Ur, or Aor, is light in Hebrew. Tif, Aor, Ret. That name begins with the Hebrew letter Tav and ends in Tav. The seal of God, the covenant, the pact of sexual magic, 
which unites the brave heroes, the great warriors, who are willing to answer three riddles in order to marry the divine princess Turandot, the Hebrew Shekinah of the Kabbalists. So, the human soul must incarnate the light, Aor. Or as we find in the rune Ur, we pray, O Divine Mother of Mine, O Isis of Mine, you have the child Aorus, my true being, within your arms. And what is that true being, Aorus? It's a symbol of Christ, because the Divine Mother is the Mother of Christ. And we find in this opera by Puccini the path of the Bodhisattva, of the incarnation of Christ, the path of sacrifice, in which the great heroes overcome trials and temptations in order to marry, to be purified within the Divine Mother. As we find in that prayer, you carry my true being within your arms. I need to die within my defects so that my essence might be lost in Him. In Him. In Him. Three times. Three riddles. Three forces. Which we find in the Christian Trinity. Which is a number in the Tarot that we find repeated often in this opera. Not only in its structure of three acts, but also three questions that the hero must answer in order to be liberated, to marry the divine. We'll be talking about the Tarot in depth in this explanation of the opera Turandot. This Arcanum 13 we discussed previously, immortality, which is the profound core of this opera. Because we find in the first act of Turandot that anyone who wishes to marry Shekinah, the Divine Mother, must answer three riddles. If he fails in any one of them, he must die, which is a symbol of how one loses one's soul if one fails in the ordeals of the 13th Arcanum. Because the work against the elimination of the ego is very difficult, very painful, very challenging. But if we are faithful to our Divine Mother Death, she will give us a crown of life, immortality, perfection. Because in order to marry the Divine Mother, Bina and Kabbalah, the Holy Spirit, or Aima Elohim, the feminine aspect of the Holy Ghost, we as a soul must be dead to the ego. The ego must not exist. And in order to reach that point, we have to answer three riddles, which are symbols that we'll be covering in Act 2. But Arcadum 13 is a profound teaching that Puccini knew very well and depicted so beautifully in his work. Samael and Vior mentions in the Aquarian message that many operas existed in relation to the mysteries of the Tarot, as well as the 13th Arcanum, which is why he explains how in the 13th Arcanum, one faces what are known as the funereal ordeals. And that opera has been used to depict that path of the death of desire. 
The funeral ordeals of the 13th Arcanum developed as a profound opera within the great archaic mysteries. The austere hierophants of the great mysteries rose from within the old sepulchres of ancient times. Because who are those austere hierophants? Austere meaning severe, masters of the left pillar of the tree of life, reminding us of severity, justice. And on the right pillar we find mercy. These two pillars of Kabbalah, of the tree of life, resonate within the dramas and symbols of this opera. But these hierophants are those who master precisely the left pillar of the tree of life, the serpent Ida. Remember that we have two serpents in our spine, the solar and the lunar serpents. Pingala, Ida, Adam, Eve, male, female, Vav, and Zain. That left serpent in most people is fallen because it's descended down the Cossacks Muladara or the Chakra Muladara through the Cossacks to form what is known as the tail of demons within the astral body. That is the tempting serpent that any initiate must overcome through the death of desire. So the old operas of the 13th Arcanum resounded with their ineffable melodies in the terrifying night of the centuries within the subterranean caverns of the earth. Some people read this statement very literally, not understanding that Samael and Vior spoke in a very Kabbalistic way because these operas of the 13th Arcanum, they resound within this Kali Yuga, this age of darkness we live in. In order to teach those souls who are demonic the path of the light, the straight path, we find that these operas resound within the subterranean caverns of the earth. And what are these caverns of the earth? People like to think that the Master Samael literally meant underground somewhere where some operas are being portrayed. But the meaning is much more symbolic. We are in Malkut, but we also know from our studies that our Sephira Malkut is submerged within the inferior laws of Klipot, within the negative infra-dimensions, which is why in certain cities like Chicago, New York, L.A., we find tremendous degeneration. We are within the caverns of the earth because we are in the abyss, even when physically active, because we find that those inferior qualities, laws of the infernal dimensions, have surfaced. But symbolically, we're in the caves. We're in the darkness. And so Turandot as an opera resounds with its symbolism of the 13th Arcanum within the caverns of the earth, which are the opera houses. And when we recognize the ineffable melodies that portray the teachings of Christ, we become filled with awe, inspiration, remembrance, so that we become inspired to work. And precisely this opera is a tool for initiates to remind them and to teach them what they must do if they want to succeed. And it is through the mysteries of this opera, of the 13th Arcanum, is how we rise from the sepulchers 
like the austere hierophants of ancient ages. Because through the teachings of this opera, we learn to overcome death. Not only psychologically, or better said spiritually, but also physically. Through the path of resurrection, of reunion, of return to the divine. In order to talk about this opera, we have to repeatedly refer to the tree of life. Because there are many characters in places that are symbolized by the teachings of the tree of life. Each character is a different sephira, a different aspect of the soul. And likewise, the multidimensionality of the tree of life teaches us how to interpret where we are in the opera, where the soul is, and what it must do. So the opera begins with tremendous clamor, tumult, amongst the people of Peking as an executioner of the law, the tribunal of divine justice, pronounces the following prophetic and deadly words. Any man of noble blood who desires to wed Turandot must first answer her three riddles. If he fails, he'll be beheaded. So if we want to marry the divine mother Turandot, we must become an initiate, a man born of noble blood. And what does it mean to be a human being? It means to reach mastery on the tree of life. We talk about five initiations of fire that lead to the creation of the human being. By raising the kundalini serpent from the body of Malkut within its spine, from the chakra muladhara to the brain, likewise with the vital body, yasod, the astral body, hod, the mental body, Natsakh and Tifereth, the causal body, at the point one can say to become a true human being, a man of noble blood. But that is not enough, because one can reach mastery, reach that level, Tifereth, the center of the tree of life. And yet it is another thing to reach perfection and mastery through the straight path of the Bodhisattvas. So in order to reach that point, one must achieve what is called the Buddhist annihilation, the death of the ego, in a complete sense. Right now, we are in Malkut, and to use the terms of Freemasonry, of which Puccini was very familiar, we are imitatus, souls that imitate the works and lives of the great masters, the adeptus, the adepts. So in order to become an adept, which is a master of the fifth initiation of major mysteries, we could say an adeptus minor, Tifereth, we have to answer the three riddles, which of course relate to how we work with the three brains, the three mother letters of Kabbalah, Aleph, Shin, and Mem, which spell Hashem, the name which if we take the letter Aleph and pronounce it as a letter Hey, Hashem, we spell the sacred name of God or the sacred appellation for the name yod Jehovah. So in the beginning of this opera, we have an executioner who provides some context for why Peking is in chaos. 
And it's also important to note that within the writings of Samael and Vior, he explains that in the tribunals of justice within the superior worlds, there are executioners. And what is that tribunal of justice represented in this opera? We find by the holy city of China, the divine. Which if we look on the tree of life, we find that there are different places mapped out here. China, the kingdom of Turandó, represents the Far East, the top trinity of the tree of life. It's important to recognize that when we look at the directions of this vertical glyph, we can transpose the four directions of the, any compass onto this glyph. We know that Tifereth is where the sun rises, which is the solar logos. Tifereth is governed by uh, Venus and the sun. The sun rises in the east, and Tifereth, therefore, is the east. To go further is to reach the far east, which is China, which is Keter, Chokmah, Binah. We know that Binah, or the feminine aspect of Binah, is known as Aima Elohim, as I said, the Divine Mother Kundalini. The west is where the sun sets, towards Malkut, but also towards the infra-dimensions, where the darkness of the mind exists. The west is towards what is known as the Tartarus, which is the opening of our opera. We can also say is the city of Peking, because in the opening of this great drama, we see there's tremendous chaos. There is crowds pushing against each other, screaming out in agony, suffering incredibly. That is hell. We begin this opera within the abyss. As you remember from the opening of this lecture, we talked about how the ineffable melodies of the 13th Arcanum resound as an opera within the abyss. And just as we find that statement from Samael and Vior, we find that a, a great executioner of the law, a divine being, speaks to those multitudes of demons that if you wish to escape your fate within the infant dimensions, you must answer three riddles. You must be of noble blood, an initiate. And by answering those riddles, you will marry Turandot. You will leave the West, which is the abyss, and enter towards China, the Far East, to marry the Divine Princess. But of course, very few take that path. Very few aspire to unite with Christ, which is why in the beginning of the opera, you find that there's only one person who is willing to do so amongst the majority of people, of which we'll be talking about in brief. He is the prince whose name is not given until the very end of the opera in Act 3. But it's important to remember that in order to escape Peking, Tartarus, the abyss, we must become initiates. We must answer the riddles and ascend the tree of life. So the initiate who does not die to the ego, who fails in those three ordeals, relating to how we work against the ego in the three brains, the intellectual brain, the emotional brain, and the motor instinctive sexual brain. If we fail in that or trials and ordeals, in the struggle against the elimination of our defects, it means that we cannot marry the Divine Mother. We fail. Like the Prince of Persia, who failed the ordeals and is executed in this act. Kundalini above, 
couldn't buffer below. So we notice that from the chorus of people in the opera, there are people who praise Turandot but also fear her. This is why Samayan Vior said that the Divine Mother is the terror of love and law. Above, she is heavenly, but down in the abyss, she is the tempting serpent that leads the lost souls, the demons, into the path of devolution. So there are three principal characters we are introduced to in the beginning of this opera. His name is never given. His name is Timur. He is the father of the prince, who is the prince caliph. Timur is the exiled king of Tartary. And we find that he is with his faithful servant, Leu. Before they reunite with the, their prince, Caliph, who is the son of Timur. Timur is related to Tartary. He's exiled from his kingdom. And now he is in Peking. He's with his servant, Leu, who is the only person who supported him after losing his kingdom. A terrifying symbol of how our spirit, our innermost God, Timur, has been exiled. Our inner God, the fourth arcanum of the Tarot, the emperor, has lost his empire. And now he is lost seeking his son, who has been separated from him. And that's a symbol of any person who, because of having created the ego, loses all development and loses all innocence. And therefore, Timur, the spirit, Chesed in Kabbalah, as well as Giburah, the divine soul, represented by Leu, the servant, are abandoned. They are separated from the soul, which is Tifereth. In Tifereth, the prince is lost in Peking. But they reunite together within the city, indicating how any person who enters Gnosis and experiences their inner God, has that reunion, which is very beautifully uh, depicted in this opera, where the prince says, Padre mio padre, I've waited for you so long, I've lost you, but now we are reunited. Because through meditation, through initial exercises in this tradition, we become reunited with our inner God. We will state that Tartary was a, a great tract of northern and central Asia stretching from the Caspian Sea in the Ural Mountains to the Pacific Ocean. Tartary relates to the north, the regions of the cold of Asia. And in Kabbalah, we say that Chesed is the north. Because if you take the four directions, east is the vertical part of the tree of life towards China the top trinity of the tree of life. The west is Malkut. The north is towards the right, Chesed. And the south relates to the left pillar of the tree of life. Because we know that the further south you go on the globe, the hotter it gets, typically, beneath the equator. Towards the northern regions, it's colder. Which is why certain authors like Friedrich Nietzsche depicted how initiates live within the north. And why many German authors and composers like Wagner always depicted the great heroes coming from the north, from the land of Boreas, Hyperboreas, Hyperborea, the northern wind, a symbol of an ancient humanity, but also representative of how 
Spiritual forces dwell within the higher regions of the globe, like the mountains, the mountain of initiation, the north. And Geburah, the south, relates to the left pillar of the tree of life, because to the powers of the left pillar is how one can return to Binah, the Holy Ghost, or by abusing the powers of the left pillar, as we discuss in Arcanum 8, that force can descend down through Malkut into the infernal plains. And this is why in the very beginning of the opera, when Timur falls, the king falls, his servant Leu says, my master has fallen. Will someone raise him for me? It's a powerful symbol. How in us, our master is no longer active. Our inner master has fallen, meaning our development has been nullified. And why does Geburah, Leu, the servant, the divine soul, state, my master has fallen? Will someone raise him? Because she is the power of the left pillar of the tree of life, which can raise the initiate, but she needs her help. And that's where the prince comes in, Prince Caliph played by Placido Domingo in this version we've been watching. So that is when they're reunited. The prince, Tifereth, emerges because only through the Sephirah, Tifereth, our human willpower, can we conquer Netzach, the mind, Hod, the emotions, Yesod, our vitality, and Malkut, our physicality, but also enter into the inferior worlds, the infra-dimensions, in order to work against the mind. So this path of initiation and this recognition of one's psychological state has been depicted in the Bible. So when Leu says, how my master is fallen, we find this represented in the book of Isaiah with the fall of the city of Tyre. Wail, you ships of Tarshish, for Tyre is destroyed and left without house or harbor. From the lands of Cyprus, word has come to them. Be silent, you people of the island, and you merchants of Sidon, whom the seafarers have enriched. On the great waters came the grain of Shihor. The harvest of the Nile was the revenue of Tyre, and she became the marketplace of the nations. So the city of Tyre was a representation of the city of the soul that was perfected. If you're familiar with the rune Tyr amongst the Nordics and in our tradition, we do the mantra Tyr with our hands raised above our head when we descend our hands down in the form of an arrow pointing up with our head as an apex. We do the mantra Tyr. That is the power of Christ that descends through our mind, the Chakrasasrara, or China, the Far East, in our head, because the solar logos enters our mind, our head, in order to descend down towards the Middle East, which is Tifereth, our heart. Because Tifereth is the East, but since it's in the middle of the Tree of Life, we call it the Middle East. Which is why the character named the Prince of Persia in this opera was a master of the Middle East, the heart, but who failed the ordeals of the 13th Arcanum. And when that energy descends down into your body, it reaches the west, which is your feet, Malkut. The north is the right hand, south is the left hand. Has said, 
Giburah. So when we work with that mantra, Tir, we're invoking those energies down to our body. And then we do the rune bar with our left hand on our left hip, our left heel against our right, our right hand against our side. Bar. And bar is fire. Because we take the energies of Christ down through our organism, our tree of life, our spine, and then f- charge our body with the rune bar. Bar in Aramaic means sun. It also means fire. And it's the root word of words like barbarian, bar, bar-arian, Aries, the power of Samael. And a, another interesting etymology is that the power of Tyr, Timur, the power of light of the spirit of the rune Tyr, also relates to uh, the acrostic Artyr, Arthur. King Arthur is the spirit, the innermost. We find that the rune R, with our left hand on our left side, our right foot out, our right hand on our right side. We do the mantra. We do that mantra in order to prepare for the awakening of the sacred fire of the Kundalini. The rune tear again is when Christ descends into us. So Arthur in the Britannic myths relates to the spirit, the power of Tartary, the north. Because we know that Britain and many of the Nordic lands were relating to the northern regions. And so that energy from the heavenly world has been abused, has been lost. Represented by the fall of Tyr in the Bible. That energy of Christ entered us, but because of our mistakes, the city has been punished. Our soul has been lost. So on the great waters came the grain of Shehor. When what are those great waters of alchemy, our energies, which is where the grain, the seed of Shehor, Shin Haor, the fire and light of our potential, is carried through the waters. And that was the revenue of Tyr, meaning that our spiritual city, our soul, in the past might have had development, and yet we've lost it, evidenced by the fact that we are ignorant. We are in Peking. We are in the darkness of the mind, lost, like in the beginning of this opera. Be ashamed, Sidon, and you fortress of the sea, for the sea has spoken. I have neither been in labor nor given birth. I have neither reared sons nor brought up daughters. And why mention that the sea has spoken? That sea is the Divine Mother, the ocean of the uncreated light, the Ain, Nain Sof, Nain Sof Aor, represented at the very top of the tree of life, the absolute. That is the great ocean, the cosmic space, Torando, whom we seek to reunite with. So I have neither been in labor nor given birth. I have neither reared sons nor brought up daughters because that ocean of the great light has not created true men in many cases. Most of humanity does not want to be a child of God and an initiate. Therefore, the ocean of the light says, I have not reared children, initiates in this planet Earth because it is a failure. 
Where are the bodhisattvas, the masters? As Leu says, my master has fallen. So our planet is precisely a mess. It is the city of Tyr that has been destroyed and will be destroyed like Babylon in the book of Revelations. So when the word comes to Egypt, they will be in anguish at the report from Tyr. And what is this Egypt? Mitzrayim in Hebrew, meaning the place between the waters. In this case, when news of the fall of Tyr has been made manifest, those initiates from the, the Egyptian pantheon in the internal worlds look at us with great sorrow. Cross over to Tarshish. Wail, you people of the island. Is this your city of revelry, the old, old city whose feet have taken her to settle in far-off lands, meaning to become strangers to the kingdom of God, the soul? Who planned this against Tyr, the bestower of crowns, whose merchants are princes, whose traders are renowned in the earth? So Tyr, again, is the bestower of crowns, because in the rune Tyr, invoking Christ into your crown of your head, your chakra. So even though those forces have entered into us because we've been degenerate, we've expelled that light, we've destroyed the city of our inner being. The Lord Almighty planned it to bring down her pride and all her splendor and to humble all who are renowned on the earth. Till your land as they do along the Nile, daughter of Tarshish, for you no longer have a harbor. Now, why mention the sea so much and the ships of Tarshish? In the internal planes, if you're driving a boat or riding in a boat, it's a symbol of working in alchemy. Or it's a symbol also of working with the waters of sexuality. Because the boat of the great Arcanum, the great Ark, the path of the archangels, hovers over the faces of the waters of Genesis, of alchemy, of transmutation. And so those ships have no harbor. I mean, they have nowhere to go because we've betrayed the great Arcanum, the teachings of chastity. The Lord has outstretched his hand over the sea and made its kingdoms tremble. He has given an order concerning Phoenicia that her fortresses be destroyed. He said, No more of your reveling, virgin daughter of Sidon, now crushed. Up, cross over to Cyprus. Even there you will find no rest like the exiled king of Tartary, Timur. It's interesting that the word Tartary sounds like Tirtari, Tyr. The powers of Tyr from above, the heavenly worlds, that have been crushed, lost. And Timur, Leu, and the prince Caliph have no place to rest because they're in exile and they're being hunted, persecuted. Because our soul is being persecuted by the ego, being hunted. Look at the land of the Babylonians, this people that is now of no account. The Assyrians have made it a place for desert creatures. They raised up their siege towers, they stripped this fortresses bare, and turned it into ruin. Wail, you ships of Tarshish, your fortress is destroyed. At that time, Tyre will be forgotten for 70 years, the span of a king's life. And the Arcanum 7 reminds us of war, battles against the ego, triumph. Because Tyr will be forgotten for 70 years, the span of a king's life. And if you reach and raise the seven serpents of fire within the lower Sephiroth of the Tree of Life, 
You become a king. You relate, re- reunite with Timur, your spirit, the light. But at the end of these 70 years, it will happen to tears in the song of the prostitute. Take up a harp, walk through the city, you forgotten prostitute. Play the harp well, sing many a song so that you will be remembered. And why mention prostitutions or prostitutes who sing their songs in remembrance of their past glories? Because right now our soul is prostituted. It is lost. It is filthy. And so we may remember past days and our own meditations, our own experiences in which we were once initiates. If you meditate and enter the internal worlds, you can find out from your inner God what is your development. Because in most cases, for most people who are in the Gnostic movement, it's because we were here before as a law of return and recurrence of all life. Many people who are in the Gnostic movement were once in other movements relating to Gnosis in the past. But because they made mistakes, they left, and now they are returning again because Timur, the spirit, is pushing for reunion. But we are like the prostituted soul that sings about past glories. We may remember in our own meditations how perhaps we were up there, but now we're here. We're in suffering. So that's something you can verify And that's something very personal. Because when you learn about your inner God and your development, perhaps in the past you were an initiate. But the point is that now we're here and we are not initiates. We have to regain what we lost. We have to regain what we remember. At the end of 70 years, the Lord will deal with Tyr. She will return to her lucrative prostitution and will ply her trade with all the kingdoms of the earth. Yet her profit and the earnings will be set apart for the Lord. They will not be stored up or hoarded. Her profits will go to those who live before the Lord for abundant food and fine clothes. Because when you work with Arcanum 7, you develop many treasures and virtues of the soul. If you remember, we talked about how by overcoming the ego, we acquire great triumphs, blessings from divinity. Glorious for our inner God. And we will return to trade, meaning working with the ocean, the sea, the ships, working in transmutation once again. So that those goods which are stored up, those virtues of the soul, will be like fine clothes, meaning solar bodies, which are inflamed with uh, fire and life. So in this opera, Chesed, Geburah, and Tifereth, Timur, Leu, and Prince Caliph are reunited, meaning the human soul has, by meditation, have experiences with the spirit and the divine soul. Because the human soul, we have to remember, is where we get the essence. Right now, we are the essence, which is 3% free and 97% conditioned by ego. But when we reunite with the divine, we feel great joy, but also great sorrow. Because any initiate who once finds the path again after having lost it is filled with a lot of lamentation and sweet melancholy. Really, to be without God is to be in the greatest suffering, which indicates why Caliph in this opera, the prince, is filled with such remorse. Because he's a fallen bodhisattva. He suffers a lot 
he's a, a man of noble blood, meaning he once entered an initiation in the past. And now he is returning to the path because he wants to return to the Divine Mother Turandot. Also, in the opera, Caliph hesitates to pronounce his father's name. So in the beginning of this opera, he says to his father, I won't say your name here because we're being persecuted. It's interesting because Samael and Veyar mentions that the spirit, said has a sacred name. All of us, our inner spirit has a divine name. Samael Vior is a sacred name of the angel Samael. Every person, every being, every innermost has a sacred name. So as we circulate through existence from existence, adopting new personalities, new terrestrial names, either of the male or female sex, those things are temporary. In truth, we maintain and always continue on in our profound depths of our consciousness with a divine name, the name that belongs to our inner God, our being. And so the Prince Caliph says to his father, I won't say your name here because we're being hunted. He knows his inner name, who his true identity is, but he fears to pronounce it because of what might happen to him. Also because they do not want to evoke the wrath of the secret enemy set by Moria in his dayspring of youth the ego, desire, the animal eye. So Leu is the only person out of the whole kingdom that was faithful to King Timur when everything fell apart. Because the divine soul, which is known as Budi in Sanskrit, is part of the innermost. The spirit, Chesed, is known as Atman amongst the Hindus. Atman Budi. And when you unite the human soul in that trinity, you form Atman, Budi, Manas. Spirit, divine soul, human soul. So the divine soul is feminine, receptive. But she is also the power of Mars. Strength. Spirituality. She remains faithful to Timur because, again, she is part of him. Atman Budi is one unit when one enters into initiation. And so the human soul must unite with that inner trinity. Another term for Leu is Beatrice. Dante's divine soul in his comedy, his divine comedy, is Beatrice who always serves God, is divine. And so she helps Tifereth. And when the Prince Caliph asks her, her, why did you serve my father so much? She says, it's because you smiled at me once. A reference to how the divine soul loves the human soul. Leu is in love with the Prince Caliph and so serves him selflessly. And, of course, Tifereth wants to marry Binah, the Holy Spirit, simply because in the Tree of Life, Binah is the higher Sephiroth that we must attain. But all parts of the soul must be integrated, must be united, and must work together, as we will see in this opera. Perhaps one of the most terrifying scenes in this opera 
is the very opening where we find the phrase or the song, Gira la Cote. And they're singing about blood and death and destruction, violence, hell. Gira la Cote means spin the wheel, sharpen the executioner's axe. This is the song of the demons in the abyss in Peking within the infernal worlds. And it's important to note that in the Bible we find the following phrase, nefesh, nefesh, blood is paid for blood. Nefesh, we explain, is the animal soul, which we find in our blood, in our instinct. When the energies of sex are expelled, we form the tale of Satan, as I mentioned, kunda buffer, that is nefesh, animal soul. And that's the energy that takes those fornicators down into the worlds of Klipot in order to devolve, to be disintegrated. Which is why all the people of Peking in the beginning are crying out and singing to hell. They're singing about the second death because they want those fallen souls for the initiates to join them within the abyss, within Tartarus, the infernal plains. It's also interesting that in that part of the opera, they're waiting for the executioner to come. Putin Pao is his name, which reminds us of Iyao, but in hell, because the power of Tyr, the heavenly world, has been lost in the infernal dimensions. Christ has been inverted, and the energies of Christ above, when they're taken and used through fornication, become the forces of the hell realms the power of nefesh, the animal soul. So all of these people are clamoring out in intoxication from desire. All those black initiates of the infernal plains don't want people to marry Turandot. And so they fight against them and sing against them, saying, let him try to answer the riddles, but he will fail and join us in death. So the black initiates, as we explained in Arcanum 8, identify and fortify the forces of devolution so that through many aeons they are disintegrated within the interior of the earth, within the astral and mental planes, or the inferior astral and mental planes, the klipot. It always fills me with great horror whenever I watch that part of the opera because I've had experiences related to it. I remember many years ago, I was in the astral plane, and a group of black magicians came after me. They were very angry with me because I am working in this path. So they took me and brought me into the, the interior of the earth and forced me to watch a ceremony which is similar to what we see in the opening of Turandot, which if you're familiar with the Metropolitan Opera uh, version, you see that they're dancing with a dragon, a serpent, where in the astral plane I saw a ritual they were performing showing how the devolving serpent has taken them down into the infernal plains. It was a, kind of like a parade or a ceremony. But of course at the time I didn't feel any fear or discomfort. Or, I was simply happy to be awake, conscious. But I looked at them very sorrowful. And of course they made them angry because they weren't convincing me about what they were doing. But I remember being in that black lodge and they were trying to tempt me 
and teach me about the inverted serpent, but I already know enough about that, and I've confronted them many times in my work, where they try to tempt you to enter the devolving path. And so these are the same multitudes, the lunar multitudes, who worship Luna. When they're waiting for the executioner to arrive to kill the prince of Persia, the master who failed in the ordeals of the 13th Arcanum, we find that they bow down and worship the moon. It's a symbol of how uh, black magicians worship the ego. Because the moon, as we explained in Arcanum 8, is the ego, desire, mechanicity, repetition, suffering. They even refer to the moon as a lopped off head, a severed head. It's a symbol of how those black magicians worship egotism, nefesh, animality. And so when they worship the moon, it's a symbol of how they're descending from Malkut to the nine spheres of hell. And the first sphere of hell relates to the moon, according to Dante in the Divine Comedy. And that's the entrance into the infernal worlds. Yes, because Yasod is the vital energy. But in heaven, it's pure. But through fornication, it's limbo, the first sphere of hell. And so they say a couple lines such as how they love the bloodless one. They're lovers of the dead. Meaning they're worshiping and loving hell because down there there's no spirit. And if you remember what Nietzsche is saying from Thus Spoke Zarathustra, he says that write with blood and you'll discover that blood is spirit. So the bloodless ones have no spirit. They have no development. And because they're in hell, they're in klipot, the world of shells, they have no substance, no life, no reality. And they suffer for many eternities down there. But at the end of that choir, calling for Putin Pao, the power of Iyao, Diablo, the infernal powers that originally came from Christ but have been filtered, conditioned, shelled with an animality. After the end of that song to Putin Pao, the executioner, we hear a, ch- a chorus of children singing where they sing uh, the melody related to Turandot. Very beautiful and innocent, very pure. It's a symbol of how after the soul devolves through the infernal worlds and after the ego is fully eliminated, then the consciousness can be extracted and returns as a child, an elemental, back within the paradises of the mineral kingdom. And then through evolution can enter the plant kingdom, then the animal kingdom, and then finally the humanoid kingdom again. So those children are those souls that were, after having entered and passed through the second death, the death of the ego and then the Klipot, they return through transmigration back up the cycles of evolution. And they're, they're singing in their song about Turandot. They say thousands of voices from the desert to the sea call upon Turandot. Because those innocent children now have another opportunity in order to return to the Divine Mother. But of course they failed. But they're going to restart the whole journey again through many millions and millions and aeons of time. Of course, that's the great problem when initiates decide to fall. They lose everything and they have to start over again. Which, of course, is a very painful process. At this point in the opera, the prince of Persia is being led to his death. 
The prince of Persia had answered or tried to answer three riddles but failed in them, and therefore he's going to be executed. Persia is in the Middle East, which is why Puccini depicted how Tifereth is in the Middle East of the glyph. Again, the sun rises in Tifereth, and since Tifereth is the middle of the tree of life, it has been depicted in certain religious scriptures as the Middle East. So the prince of Persia is a master. He's a malek, a king, a warrior of Tifereth, emphasized by the name Persia, or Pharisee, Farsi, which means worshiper of fire, Inri, Christ. Yes. So this character, he's a bodhisattva, but he failed the ordeals. He didn't eliminate the ego, and therefore he's going to be decapitated by the executioner, meaning he's going to enter devolution because he failed. He couldn't eliminate his desires. They're too powerful. And at this point, the chorus shifts gears. It's interesting that the chorus sometimes praises the initiates, but then sometimes praises hell. It's because in us, our kingdom is mixed. We're mixed with either virtue and, and, and vice. But everyone cries out to Turandot for mercy for the prince of Persia because they see how beautiful he is. Because any master who has light is beautiful is Tifereth. Because Tifereth in Hebrew means beauty. They want mercy for him. They don't want him to be executed. But of course, the Divine Mother is very severe because if you want to marry her, you have to have no ego. That's why she's very demanding. And why she is sometimes depicted in this opera as being very cruel. Cold as jade. Cold as a sword. Because she is Zayim. The letter of Kabbalah relating to the spine, the Kundalini, the seventh arcanum. We'll state that he was a prince of the Middle East who wanted to marry the Divine Mother in the Far East, the chi at China. And through the help of the Spirit and the Divine Soul. And so it's a tragedy that this prince of Persia failed. And it's very common. Many bodhisattvas fail in the work because they need to work more diligently in the death of the ego. And as we stated, the, the chorus laments his death or his impending death because coming from the Greek traditions, the word, the chorus, can either be adulatory or condemning. It plays a dual function, referring to how the word, the Christ, can be channeled in heaven or in hell. Sometimes the crowd praises Christ, saying, Hosanna, Hosanna, in the highest. Glory to God in the highest. And then the next, crucifixia, crucifixia. So you find the duality in the chorus, even from the Greek traditions, but also from in this opera. And when Caliph sees the prince, sees the prince of Persia going to his death, he says, Turandot, you are cruel. Let me see your face so I can curse you. Because anyone in the beginning of these studies, when hearing about the severity of the Divine Mother, obviously feels fear, or the ego feels fear. and says, let me look at that divinity so I can curse her. But this is in the moment when he sees her for the first time and is overwhelmed and overcome by her beauty. When he sees her in, the, in this version of the opera, 
the stage rises along with the glorious theme or motif for the Divine Mother. Dun, 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 dun. Kind of a mixture of Italian with Chinese music. Very beautiful alchemical synthesis of styles. When he sees her in, for the first time, he's overwhelmed with love. Because anyone who experiences the Divine Mother in her true form wants to marry her, to be united with her. Because she is perfection in an absolute sense. And Caliph, in this version of the opera, I don't know of what other versions may have this, but he has his hands outstretched, raised, like this, in the form of the ruined man, because he wants to receive the power of the Divine Mother within him, the light. At this point in time, the crowds disperse, Turindo vanishes, and the chorus states, Please take the soul of the dying prince of Persia up to heaven. It's interesting that this word kung is mentioned by Samayan Vior in his book Christ's Will, which reminds us of a gong, a keynote in nature. He explains in that book how all of nature has its sounds, its keynotes, within the spiritual realms as well as the physical. And so he says that I believe the line he uses in his book is how Christ resounds like the Chinese kung. And you find in this opera, kung tse, please take this soul of this dying man up to heaven. Because any sound like a gong or a bell is a symbol of the divine, of Christ. You say in the astral plane, looking to the sky, in the name of Christ, by the power of Christ, for the glory of Christ, you'll see from the sky a bell and a tremendous gong. Boom. You know those church bells that resound in the tops of cathedrals? Originated from that. Because when you invoke Christ in the astral plane, you hear a gong, a, a bell, and which also reminds us of ringing the bell three times when the prince decides to take upon himself the ordeals of the 13th Arcanum by ringing the gong three times to awaken Turano, a symbol of how we awaken the Kundalini within the Chakra Muladhara which is coiled three and a half times in the Cossacks. But before that point, Caliph has to face many trials. He becomes inebriated by her perfume, which is a symbol of chastity, because pure smells reminds us of incense, of transmutation, of the aroma of the sexual energy, which we inhale through the breath, the prana, and we circulate throughout our body. When he cries out her name, Turandó, Three times. The crowd becomes silent, and then you hear the Prince of Persia yell, Turandó, and then he's executed. And of course, Timur and Leu, in this part of the opera, become very concerned. They don't want their child, the human soul, to enter that path. But the fact that the crowds cry out in fear, in terror, when the Prince of Persia is executed. Also represents how, in the internal planes, if you call out the name of the Virgin Mary, Miriam, the demons scream in terror. They despise chastity, which is something that Samayan Vior stated in his books. But of course, King Timur and Leu, 
they are concerned with Caliph. They don't want him to enter that fate. And it seems contradictory that if Timur is the spirit and Leu is the divine soul, why would they try to dissuade Caliph from the path? It's also something very subtle and symbolic, something very beautiful. They warn him the, about the consequences of failure, but they don't dissuade him from the path. They only tell him that if you fail, you will suffer more than had you never started. Because when you work with energy, you build up power, force, and if that becomes diverted back down into hell again, one falls lower than one began. And so they emphasize that the work of the ego is very dangerous, very difficult. And if you fail, you will lose more than you never started. But this type of dynamic in the relationship refers to a scripture within the book of Mark, chapter 10, verses 29 to 30, when Jesus refers to how one's family, one's friends, will go against oneself which is represented by this symbol. Because when we enter the path of initiation, people go against us. They dislike the fact that we are working against the ego. And Jesus answered and said, Verily I say unto you, there is no man that had left his house, or brethren, or sisters, or father, or mother, or wife, or children, or lands, for my sake, and the gospels. But he shall receive a hundredfold now in this time houses and brethren and sisters and mothers and children and lands and with persecutions and in the world to come eternal life at this point in time we meet three very enigmatic characters their names are ping pang and pong they come into the scene in order to stop the prince from following his destiny. They're coming into the scene in order to tempt the prince. And their names aren't given at this point in the opera, but their names are Ping, Pang, and Pong. If you look at the vowels of their name, you find the meaning of their symbol. E, A, O. Ignis, Agua, Origo. Yes. Because this force of E-A-O, when it's in heaven, is pure. But within the ego is the tempter. This is where we get the word Diablo. So this is Lucifer, which represents part of our being. He is our psychological trainer. The light of Lucifer reminds us of Luciferos, the light of Christ. Up in heaven, Lucifer was divine. But because we fell, we took Lucifer, the creative sexual energy, and destroyed it, conditioned it through desire, through ego. That light become, became the devil, the ego, desire. And so that energy is partly trapped in the ego. It needs to be liberated. Which is why Samael and Viora stated that Lucifer is our psychological trainer who is mixed with desire he is the part of our being that gives us trials and ordeals and temptations so that we can face ourselves face the mind in order to see our problems because without facing those psychological conflicts those trials those ordeals we can't find and work on the ego we can't see our defects so he is the light of 
Iao, but in hell he is Diablo, the tempter. And this is why in the Buddhist myth, Mara has three daughters who tempt Buddha when he's meditating beneath the Bodhi tree. He wants to climb the tree of knowledge of good and evil to work with a marriage. And of course, he's tempted by his three brains, his intellect, his emotions, and his sex through desire because the ego manifests in the three brains. E-A-O. E reminds us of the intellectual brain because the mantra E vibrates in the head. The mantra O vibrates in the heart. And the vowel A reminds us of the waters, also the breath, because we work with the breath and the creative sexual energy through our lungs to work upon the waters of Genesis. E-A-O. Intellectual brain relating to Netzach. Emotional brain relating to Hod. And the motor instinctive sexual brain relating to Yesod, our waters. So in order for Caliph to be more determined in his path, he has to be tempted. And so his own mind goes against him. Raging and conflicting with him by saying, Turandot doesn't even exist. Why do you want to enter this path? Who are you? What do you want? And that's a question that we ask ourselves and we are asked in our Gnostic studies. Who are we? What are we living for? Where are we going? Why are we living? And so any student who enters Gnosis for the first time faces that conflict. When beginning to learn meditation, they find that the mind is fighting, is agitated, is addicted to sensations, to desires. I believe there's even one line that Ping, Pang, and Pong say, why do you want to marry Turandot so much? Why do you want the Divine Mother? You can have many women here in this physical plane. And so that's lust and temptation and the motor instinctive sexual brain. And so Caliph becomes very angry, very agitated. He says, leave me be, let me follow my path. But of course, the ego is always going after him. Lucifer is always tempting, trying to show him his own faults so that he can marry Turandot. That's the great mystery of Diablo. If there are no temptation, there is no light. Temptation is fire. Triumph over temptation is light. If you want to enter the Far East as a soul emanating from the Middle East, you have to descend to the West, the Abyss, the Tartarus, where the power of Tyr, Tyrtarus, Tyr, the energies are inverted. You have to go down into your own hell realms through Arcanum 1, through descending into the infernal worlds in order to reascend with power. That's the mystery of Lucifer. So we find that these three characters, Ping, Pang, and Pong, are represented in this work many times throughout the opera, in Act 2 and 3. More importantly, within Act 1, but also in Act 3. Act 2 a little bit more subtly. But it's important to note that if we want mastery, we have to be tempted. Samayan Vyor explains in his book, The Mystery of the Golden Blossom, that there are many spirits, many masters, or monads, inner beings, because the word monad means unity. They don't want mastery. Therefore, they don't push their soul with spiritual inquietudes or longings to want to enter into initiation. But those who are really pushed by the being, who want to obtain self-realization, feel great disturbances, great longings, great sufferings, because they know that intuitively, if they continue as they are, 
they'll be taken by the forces of devolution in order to be destroyed in hell. And if any of us are in these studies and classrooms, it's because we know from experience, deep down, that we don't want to enter that path. And so many people think that those who enter initiation are crazy, insane, which is why Caliph is accused of being a lunatic in this opera or in this act. They think he's mad because he wants to unite with Turandot. And, of course, you can look at the size of our classrooms of people who are interested in marrying the Divine Mother Turandot. Most people, they run away. They're not interested in working on ego. Because to marry Turandot is very demanding. To marry the Divine Princess Shekinah is very arduous. Which is why Khalil Gibran, who wrote many Sufi Christian poems, like the Prophet, describes this path very beautifully in relation to this opera. I'm not saying that he saw this opera and commented on it, but there are certain allegories here in his writings, in The Madman, that relate to what Prince Caliph and what any person entering into initiation experiences. You ask me how I became a madman. It happened thus. One day, long before many gods were born, I woke from a deep sleep and found all my masks were stolen. The seven masks I have fashioned and worn in seven lives. I ran maskless through the crowded streets, shouting, Thieves! Thieves! The cursed thieves! Men and women laughed at me, and some ran to their houses in fear of me. And when I reached the marketplace, a youth standing on a housetop cried, He's a madman! I looked up to behold him. The sun kissed my face, my own naked face for the first time. For the first time, the sun kissed my own naked face, and my soul was inflamed with love for the sun. Just as Caliph falls in love with the Divine Mother Turandot when he sees her for the first time. And I wanted my masks no more. And as if in a trance, I cried, Blessed, blessed are the thieves who stole my masks. Thus I became a madman. And I have found both freedom of loneliness and the safety from being understood for those who understand us and slave something in us. But let me not be too proud of my safety. Even a thief in a jail is safe from another thief. So what is that son? It's Christ. We have to tear the veil of Isis in the seven bodies, the seven masks we've worn in seven lives by raising the fire of Kundalini up the bodies of Malkut, Yasod, Hod, Netzach, Tiferet, Gibrah, Hesed. We are tearing the seven masks off from our face so that Christ, the Son, the Soul Logos, can inflame us with purity so that we can become united with Christ. So people who enter this path obviously are accused of being lunatics. These type of topics don't please people. They don't please academics. They don't please the scholars, the religious fanatics the fornicators. This type of knowledge is very distinct, which is why the mysteries of the 13th Arcana resound within the darkness of the caverns of the earth, where there are very few people who want to take advantage of it. And as Caliph and, the, and Ping, Pang, and Pong, Lucifer and the three brains, because Lucifer tempts us in our intellect, our emotions, and our sex, as they're arguing, certain mistresses to the princess Turandot reprimand them that she is sleeping and that they shouldn't awaken her. 
It's a symbol of how Kundalini is sleeping in the chakra muladhara and is awaiting for the moment of divine awakening within sexual alchemy through E-A-O, which we know is the sacred mantra in the perfect matrimony, the supreme mantra for sexual alchemy. So ping, pang, and pong, tell him, shun the riddles of Turandot. It's like shunning the mountains is one word they use. Meaning, don't enter initiation, don't climb the mountain of the tree of life, but stay down here. They tell him, why do you want Turandot so much? She doesn't even exist. She's not real. Which is what the ego says, the mind says. Personally, I remember one retreat in which I was having a conversation with certain Buddhists, black magicians. They were awake. And they were trying to convince me again that my love for my Divine Mother is illusory, that I should enter down into the infernal worlds because they think in a backward sense that going into the interior of the earth is entering to development because they're identified with those forces, with the Divine Mother in hell. And so they offer many arguments and philosophical debates and theories and beliefs telling you why fornication is good and why the Divine Mother is bad. So this is very common. Conflicts that one faces. It's here at this point in the opera that we hear the ghosts of the dead worshipping Devi Kundalini. Those are the disembodied souls who have entered into Klipat, who fell into the abyss because they failed the ordeals of the 13th Arcanum. So even in their suffering, when they're devolving, they're singing out. If you remember in the opera, they're showing the heads of the decapitated on spikes, and you hear their ghostly call from the, from the infernal worlds, calling up, saying, we still love Turandot. Because even when they're devolving and being disintegrated, they love the divine force of the divine mother. But of course, in heaven, she's divine. But in hell, she devours her own children. And that's because that force is utilized depending on our level of being, our qualities of being. It's also important to know that the Divine Mother never abandons her child. Because those souls who are filled with ego, who don't want to rise up to the light, they have to be disintegrated out of compassion. So the Divine Mother accompanies them down into the infernal worlds to be destroyed. But at this point in time, the prince hears those ghosts calling out from the dead, from the abyss. And he says, no, only I love Turandot. Because only a prince of the Middle East can love Turandot perfectly, be reflected within her and her within him. It's also interesting to note that the sacred mantra for the Sephirah of Tiferet is Eloah Vadat, meaning goddess of knowledge, Yod Chava, within the world of Tiferet, as described within the region of Atsilut, within the world of Tiferet, the sacred name of God in that Sephirah. So, Leu sings for Caliph not to leave because she does not want him to fail. She says, your name has always been on my lips as we've wandered within this infernal world seeking your remembrance. So the word for God is Hashem, the name. Your name has been on my lips. And the lips refers to Da'at, meaning we've always remembered you, the soul 
but we are separated from you as we're in exile because we are the essence which emanated from Tifereth. But we are in Malkut and we seek to be reunited with the spirit and the divine soul. So this is when she sings Signora Scolta. Listen, my Lord. Meaning don't fail in your work because if you fail in the work, the thread that unites the soul with the being will be cut. That's known as the Antakarana thread. And fallen souls, demons, who have no hope for redemption, that connection is, is, is severed. And so she sings in lamentation, if you fail in this work, you will be cut off from us and you'll be devolving and suffering tremendously. And at this point, Caliph still remains resolved. He says, I won't renounce my effort, my will, because I want to marry my divine mother. And that's the type of willpower we need, the aspiration we need when we practice. Caliph says he suffered too much. He no longer smiles. That's because any fallen bodhisattva has lost God. And so he says, I once smiled in the past, but now I'm unhappy. I will only be happy when I return to Devi Kundalini, my divine princess. And really, every aspirant who finds the path does so because they want to see suffering, but even more so for fallen masters. A fallen master suffers tremendously because they had the light and they lost it. And now they want to return back to their origins. Yes, because the Divine Mother is Turando. She is uh, Ram Yo. Right, so the concept of the Divine, the divine Mother is, may sound a little strange. Why is the Prince Caliph trying to marry the Divine Mother? It's because while she's the mother of the soul, when our soul is perfected, it fully unites with Ayim Elohim and Abba Elohim as a perfect unity. So you have Osiris Ra and Oros. Osiris is the Divine Father. Isis is the Divine Mother. And Oros is the Son. So through self-realization, that trinity becomes perfected, unified. But of course, in order to get to that point, Caliph, the prince, has to suffer a lot. Because it is through suffering in which one becomes inspired to change. So fallen bodhisattvas obviously suffer more than other people because they had a higher knowledge of the law and because they broke the law, they were more accountable and more responsibility. This is known as the line of the law, katansia, karma of the initiates and the gods, as we discussed in Arcanum 5. So the people around him say, life is beautiful. Why do you want to abandon life? Why do you want to abandon this, this physical world? Why do you want to go up there and challenge love to be united with her and risk everything? But Caliph says, I ask for pity from you because I love her so much that I'd be willing to do anything in my power. He says, no power on earth can hold me back. I follow my destiny. And the crowd is singing, we're digging your grave for you, ready for you, for those who challenge love. Because the ordeals of the death of the ego are very challenging, as we said. Friedrich Nietzsche depicts this struggle in his book, Thus Spoke Zarathustra, of which we'll relate in brief. This is from On the Way of the Creator. 
And I've added some commentary and explanations into some of the language he uses because it's very deep. Is it your wish, my brother, or fellow initiate, to go into solitude, meditation? Is it your wish to seek the way to yourself, your Divine Mother, or your Ain Sof? Because you remember when we do the rune Ur, we say, I, I need to die within my defects so that my essence may be lost in Him, in Him, in Him. That Him is our Ain Sof, our inner being, as we discuss in Arcanum 2 of the Tarot Course. So it is it your wish to seek the way to yourself, then linger a moment and listen to me. He who seeks initiation easily gets lost in the abyss and the second death. All loneliness is guilt, or better said, all loneliness or contemplation and self-remembering is guilt. Thus speaks the herd, the fornicators, the people of Peking. And you have long belonged to the herd. The egotistical voice of the herd will still be audible in you. And when you will say, I no longer have a common conscience with you, it will be a lament and an agony. Behold, this agony itself was born of the common conscience, the collective lunar mind of the intellectual animals, the lunar multitudes who worship the second death. And the last glimmer of that conscience still glows on your affliction, for you are entering into initiation through conscious works and voluntary sufferings. But do you want to go the way of your affliction, the path of sacrifice of the 13th Arcanum, the denial of the ego, which is the way to yourself, Ain Sof Pananishpana, as we explain in Arcanum 2. Then show me your right and your strength to do so. Are you a new strength and a new right, meaning the aspiration, longing, and power of Bodhicitta, which claims for itself the end goal, self-realization, Ain Sof Pananishpana. Are you a new strength and a new right, a first movement within Tikatera? Are you a self-propelled wheel? Can you compel the very stars to revolve around you? This is what Caliph does. The whole world goes against him, saying, you can't do this, you can't rise, you want to go to the very heights of the absolute, go beyond the universe, and yet you're down here. You think you can do this? And so this is how the mind and the black magicians tempt you, fighting against you and railing and trying to tempt you in the astral plane and physically, and trying to plant doubts to make you fail or to convince you that you can't do it. This is a process that's beautifully described in the writings of Rudolf Steiner and also Samuel Veor, where he talks about the guardian of the threshold. And for those of you who are not familiar with the guardian of the threshold, Samuel Veor explains that this is part of our being, which in the beginning of this path, we have to face a certain ordeal in which we confront a figure of our, our manifestation of all of our defects. This can happen in the internal planes, through internal experiences, in which you see a great monster, gigantic, a full reflection of what you are. And so you have to fight that monster and defeat it in the name of Christ, by the power of Christ, for the glory of Christ. And this is partly alluded to in this opera, in which he wants to ring the gong three times to awaken Devi Kundalini, because... Before we can awaken the kundalini, we have to face the guardian of the threshold in which we are tempted by 
our own defects. We have to face that beast. And personally, I remember fighting my own monster, my guardian. And it was a very bloody battle. But fortunately, I succeeded. And I remember in that experience, a group of black magicians were looking at me and they were horrified. I remember the light of Christ inspired me to speak and say, it can be done. You have to want it. And they, were, they stood there amazed. But you see that reflected in the opera in which you have all the voices of hell raised against him. And yet he says, Turandó! And of course the people in the crowd say, Morte! Turandó! Morte! And then Turandó again, meaning death. He, every time he says her name, they say death. Because that death will either occur through initiation, through victory, or in failure. There are two ways to die, willingly or unwillingly. So, after he overcomes their temptations, their struggle, the struggle against the crowd, he strikes the gong three times in order to awaken the Divine Mother. So, this is when the Kundalini awakens from the Chakra Muladhara to rise against up in the 33 vertebrae of the spine. And 33 reminds us of 3 plus 3, which is 6. Arcanum 6, indecision, which is what we find reflected in this struggle in this opera. It also refers to the commandment, thou shalt not fornicate. And this is how he begins to initiate his journey back up the tree of life from Malkut to Tifereth, the Middle East. And in conclusion, I'll relate to another experience that relates to this topic. Many years ago, I was meditating and had the experience of leaving my body and then I found myself in the astral plane, flying, being taken by my Divine Mother to a travel agency. And I knew in the travel agency, I went up to the counter, I said to the lady at the desk, I want to go to the Middle East. How much do I have to pay? The woman said, $355. 5 plus 5 is 10, plus 3 is 13. So they were telling me, you want to go to the Middle East, Tifereth? Achieve Akarnam 13. Die in your ego. And I remember at that moment, I heard someone laughing at me. And I knew intuitively it was an execution of the law. Because in the opera, not necessarily in this version, but in other versions too, when he strikes the gong three times, Caliph, you hear uh, the executioner laughs. And so I remember that experience. They were telling me, the executioner was laughing because there's going to be death either way, victoriously or as a failure. It depends on our work. Do you have any questions?
Yeah, so it's one thing to reflect on an ego, another thing to be identified with it. I know that when we face certain uglinesses in the mind relating to our faults, it gets very painful. But the thing we have to remember is that we have to observe what we witnessed, what we saw in that moment. Look at concrete facts, concrete details. So if we discovered in a moment of conflict with a coworker an element of anger and pride and also resentment, and we feel that we acted wrong, we feel that intuitive discernment and remorse. The thing is to remember that and to, again, feel that longing, but also don't dwell on it. Don't beat oneself up over the fault, but to feel remorse is another thing. Primarily because remorse is a conscious quality, but shame is something else. Shame is not useful. It doesn't help. But if we feel remorse and say to ourselves, you know, I really made a terrible mistake here. Personally, when I have that at work, certain conflicts, I tell myself, okay, let me continue observing. Let me be mindful. Remember my God. And I continue to pray until when I get home, I go and I reflect on that mistake and pray for understanding. Imagine that scene as it happened. Concentrate on my inner God, my divine mother. Ask her, show me with insight, how did I make a mistake here? What did I do wrong? And you'll find with profundity and depth of the practice, without forgetting what we're concentrating on, what we're meditating on, the insight will come to you. And in that way, you can pray for elimination. And that's how we travel to the Middle East, go up the tree of life, is by not flagellating ourselves and saying, I'm a bad person, I'm negative. Because even though we are demons, there's no need to... Adopt a morbid attitude. It doesn't help anyone. People who are morbid end up leaving Gnosis because they don't see any benefit from the practices. But people who comprehend and feel remorse is something else because they feel inspired. When you feel remorse, you recognize, you know, you say, I made a big mistake. And that remorse in the heart is what is inspiring us from divinity to change. Because without that inspiration, without that remorse, we'd be lost. Which is why Caliph, in the beginning of the opera, or better said, at the end of the first act, says, I've suffered too much. I'm in so much pain. I feel so much remorse. I'm no longer happy. And that recognition of the causes of suffering is what impedes one and pushes, or better said, pushes one to want to enter the path of love, to challenge love. Yes, about death. Death of the ego. The Divine Mother. Right. It's, it's a corrosive force that will you know, hold you back on the path. But you really got to feel it. If you tell yourself that, words are one thing. Oh, yeah, yeah, I, I was wrong with this. Unless you feel it in your heart, and it brings out a certain empathy. Right. You know, and that, that sense develops the more you meditate. 
because you find that in your interactions with people, whether at work or with family or friends, you become more intuitive, more insightful. You see how even your thoughts affect people, even your emotions, which, you know, we think we like to think that we're separated from people in a very physical sense, like there's a barrier. I can think whatever and why I want and feel whatever I want, and that's not going to affect anyone. But the truth is that our mind influences people. And if you become very intuitive and clairvoyant, and develop that faculty very well, you start to sense more and more and recognize how wrong negative psychological states produce suffering. Revolution of the dialectic. Well, the solution is observe. Obviously, it's good not to talk about what one doesn't know. You know, I know in my employment, my job, when people ask me things that I'm not capable of or don't know, I say, I don't know. I can give you an educated guess, but, you know, but I think you should talk to so-and-so because... It's important not to try to go about thinking that one knows things that one doesn't, which is something I apply very strictly to my lectures here, to teach things only that I know and to avoid or to refer to the Master Samael for things I don't know. Or repeat, or repeat what people say have said and, and that I don't really have an experience because it doesn't help anybody. You have a lot of people in the Gnostic movement who like that. They parrot, they talk about things they haven't experienced, so... Uh, it's always good to speak from our own knowledge, yeah, from experience, and to observe, and just observe what is our psychological state, and to be mindful throughout the day, observe in each moment, and that's how you get data about your defects, because as we say in this teaching, there's no golden maxim that I can follow this, 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 and this, and then I'm going to go up to the Middle East and the Far East and Mary Turandona will be done. You know, it's very difficult. As you'll see in Act 2, it's very difficult, very dangerous, because you find that when you have to answer those riddles in yourself, when you answer those ordeals, when you reach conflicts in your daily life, how you choose to respond determines your fate and where you go. So the way to understand proper psychological states is to observe. And then intuitively you'll know in any circumstance of life what to do. You know, it's, would you say that it would be wrong to point that out to other people? If they need it, and if you know that they're going to listen. Yeah. But at the same time, Otherwise, certain people that you know, we, just, we respect their will. We say, if you don't want to change, it's your business. Personally, I work with certain clients that are very difficult. They test me all the time, try to find loopholes in my thinking, the way that I work with them. But they like me a lot because I don't judge them. Still doesn't mean that I don't instill punitive measures when I have to. 
But at the same time, you know, we have to help people based on our capacity, our abilities, but without forcing our will on others, as we related it with our Chronicle 11, persuasion. What I, what I, yeah, what I meant was that they're awakened in evil. And to be awake doesn't necessarily mean they're awake in a good way. Because there are, a black magician is a being that is a, a real full-fledged black magician, is a being who is aware that they're awake. They have powers in the ego. They can astral project. They can do gin science. They can read people's minds. They can talk telepathically. So when I was talking about those specific cases, I should have been more clear. It was that they were awakened and evil. They were demons. And they are trying to pull me from my path, telling me things and trying to have arguments with me. And I just, you know, I was like Prince Cal- trying to be like Prince Caliph, like I remember from the opera, just saying, no, you need to be, you know, that's your path. So be it. So they probably, they, they probably have this knowledge that they're, they're you know, whether it's this or Rosicrucian or something, and, and they just go on the opposite end. Some of them do. A lot of them don't. They don't have this knowledge. There's many who do know. Now that uh, Some Island VR's teaching has been more explicit and open, they've been very aware of what he teaches. This is why the ineffable melodies of the 13th Arcanum resound as an opera within the caverns of the earth because this teaching is now open to everyone. And Some Island VR explained the symbols of these great operas in his teachings. So they know the knowledge and it's even more painful for them when they reject the knowledge, because as you read in the Quran, Prophet Muhammad was teaching how he kept giving his doctrine, his light, but the unbelievers wouldn't accept it. Or as the Bible says, the people who walketh in darkness have seen a great light. They don't understand the light. A lot of them don't want to change. Some do. That's because no one loves death of the ego. They love the ego. This is why all the multitudes of humanity in the chorus, and they're praising blood and death and fornication and evil. And that's the multitudes who worship the moon, which is why you know, the opera begins in that setting. And they all are worshiping and bowing to the executioner who's going to kill them, the second death. That's what humanity loves. It's happening because the ego has been building up so much in our humanity that finally there's only a maximum that it can reach before this humanity needs to be annihilated. As we explained in the first lecture in this course, the introduction to the secret teachings of opera, available on chicagonoses.org, that humanity has reached its end. This Aryan race will be pulverized, will be annihilated. But before that point, the teachings of the 13th Arcanum are made available in the opera houses to teach the demons who want to change. And for those who don't, so be it. Let them be. Well, a lot of people, you know, they go to the seek pure adult. They want to hear the music. Well, it's not the most glorious. But as far as the metaphysical aspects, maybe one in a hundred might. I mean, 
Not even. I've, I've looked on the internet to see if anyone in our tradition has commented on Turno, and I don't. I didn't find anyone yet. I mean, I know people have seen uh, people I know who I've worked with in this tradition who know about it, who know the opera well, but I haven't found anyone who's explained it. So personally, this is an opera that has influenced me greatly. So I felt it important for me to explain for people who don't know. There's a references to the Guardian, the Threshold, and the Perfect Matrimony. Specifically, which is where he introduces that. But also, he talks about the Guardian, the Threshold, and the Pisa Sophia unveiled. Guardian, the Threshold is an ordeal that the disciple faces at the beginning of the path to determine whether or not they're going to be qualified for what are known as the major mysteries. So, in the beginning of the path, before we can awaken Devi Kundalini, we have to be tested. So this is known as the probationary path or the minor mysteries. Any person who is single or even married has to pass through the minor initiations relating to nine degrees, which also relates to entering the interior of the earth in its nine strata, its nine infernal regions. It's a symbol of how we have to face ourselves to a certain degree in which we recognize our egotism, our suffering, and that we need to change. It's because people, the black magicians, fortify that element in themselves. They don't want to work against it. But in the probationary path, you have to face the guardian. You know, you face an ordeal in the eternal worlds, internally, in which you have to confront your own self. So the guardian of the threshold, Samuel says, is your being, but reflects in you all of your garbage, all your evilness that you've accumulated over many millennia. And so you have to face it in a very great battle. You have to fight hand-to-hand, psychologically, against this beast and conjure it. If you don't defeat it, people who don't defeat it eventually leave Gnosis. They abandon the teaching. But people who have conquered, they stay, because they conquered the ordeal. And so you find that subtly referenced to in the opera, where you have all these people going against them, all the voices clamoring, saying... Have pity on us. Don't do this work. What do you think you're doing? You can't reach Turandot. And the ping, pang, and pong, Diablo, is part of that, is related to the guardian of the threshold because he's the tempter. But those are the three brains also, right? You mentioned? Right. Because... Yeah, because ping, pang, and pong, E-A-O, E vibrates in the head, the intellectual brain. O relates to the heart. And ah, the breath can also relate to your seminal energies. Three brains. Since we live in a dualistic world, in this reality we live in, isn't it better not, not to try to think positive thoughts because you're all right and it's ignited, but really right. think no thoughts at all? Well, we have to learn how to use the mind intuitively. That's a very subtle skill we acquire through meditation because... We have a job, we need the intellect to help us. But it doesn't mean that the intellect has to be used all the time. I'm saying like if you're walking down the street, like obviously you need, you know, 
stop to go left and then go back. Right. Isn't it better just to keep it blank to, you know, than, than to, you know, where you get a lot of the self-help books is like think positive thoughts, this and that. It's, yeah. It's automatically going to leave and then some negative thoughts going to come up. Yeah, the highest form of thought is no thought. But to reach that point, as Salmayan Vior states in his book, Igneous Rose, thought must flow serenely and sweetly like a river without obstruction. Typically, our thinking tends to be very heavy, identified, and disturbing. But thought should be something serene and subtle, so to the point that in which you're not thinking anymore. Yeah. You're only receiving life. And I remember there was a lecture that Salmayan Vior gave and what he said to his students, some of his students, a lot of you struggle with your mind. Your mind is bossing you around. You're identified too much with it. Personally, my mind is perfectly under control. You know, there's moments in which, you know, I have to teach, and therefore I use my mental body. But when I don't need to use it, I don't use it. So in the opera, you find that uh, that teaching of serenity very beautifully exemplified, and the fact that as strong as the prince caliph is, it may seem that he's very disturbed. You know, obviously someone who's singing in an opera is very passionate, but we have to remember that equanimity, silence of the mind, serenity, is a quality distinctly related to tiferet, because the human soul, human willpower. Pure concentration is a state of serenity, of calmness, in which there's no agitation in the mind. And we talked about this extensively in our lectures on Gnostic meditation, about the nine stages of meditative concentration, in which one ascends from a completely distracted mind to a fully serene and concentrated mind. So meditative equipose is equanimity, is tiferet. Because when we reach the ninth degree of concentration, in which... We're fully relaxed, serene, calm. We've reached Tifereth, psychologically speaking, in terms of what part of our soul is most active. When you astral travel, are you sitting in your chair like this, or are you laying down? Well, sometimes when I've meditated, I, I've fallen asleep in my chair, my meditation chair. Other times I've lying down to go to bed and doing a mantra in my mind, falling asleep and having that experience. Well, uh, with astral travel, what happens is every person projects into the astral plane at night. Every time one goes to sleep. The problem is that we do so unconsciously. We tend to do it without any awareness. But if we train ourselves, we can take something that's mechanical and make it conscious. So lucid dreaming can happen often when we're working in mindfulness. Working with what's known as the key of soul. Subject, object, location. Be aware that you are in your body, you're the subject, you're observing you're the objects around you, and you question and, and interpret what is your location. Where are you situated? You train your mind like that when you're living physically. 
living life physically. You learn to do that in the astral plane because we go many places unconsciously without awareness, without any understanding about where we're, where we're at or where we're going. But we may have a moment in which we gain insight. We suddenly see ourselves in some place. We question, where am I? How did I get here? You involve yourself in a type of questioning. And you ask that question, and to test yourself, you can either jump in the air to see if you'll float, pull your finger. Pull your finger to see if it'll stretch. You pull your finger so that it stretches out, you'll realize that you're in your lunar astral body and that you're in the dream state. So what this opera teaches us in relation to that practice is that we need to be very defined. We need to be very passionate in the conscious sense, following the passion of Christ. We have to be inspired. And the way that we can do that, like we began this lecture with, was with the runes. You know, get yourself good energy. Do the rune man, rune fa, r, isis, rami, or ur, ramio, and work with practices every day so that we feel charged. Because if you see in the opera, Caliph, what makes him such a memorable character, so loved by many audiences, is that he is determined to the point that he's not going to let anything stop him. And that's the type of willpower we need in our practices, whether it be of astral projection, dream yoga, meditation. Yes. Yes, because if there's no energy, there's no fire, there's no light. You don't save your energy. If we waste it through negative emotions, we can't awaken in the astral plane, the world of emotions. If we waste our mental energy, we can't awaken in the mental plane because we have no fuel there. And likewise, the sexual energy too, which is the basis of all three, of all three brains. Because the sexual energy circulates from Yasod to Tifereth to Keter in your body. Speaking of your body as a tree of life. So we need energy. We need enthusiasm, which is why I really love Prince Caliph so much as an initiate in this opera. And Puccini, who was reflecting what he went through. Because no artist can reflect that if they haven't experienced it themselves. You can't teach something like that unless you've lived it. So he had a lot of passion, meaning he loved his being so much that he was willing to do anything to work for her. And so when we have that longing in our heart, when we're very determined, we don't let obstacles get in our way. Instead, we triumph through them and are willing to suffer no matter what the cost will be because we love divinity so much. And that has to come from inside, from experience. 
Because when you personally converse with your Divine Mother and see how beautiful she is, you can't help but melt. You enter ecstasy. She'll come to you in, in symbols and dreams and different forms to teach you psychological truths about yourself. You know, as I gave the example of going into the travel agency, she was showing me, she was at the counter saying, you want to go to the Middle East? Well, you want to return to me? Pay $355. And money in the symbolic language has to do with dharma or karma. Paying money means you've got to earn certain things, certain experiences. You have to work for them. And that's why I teach this doctrine is because I've been pushed by my being to do what he and she wants, which is self-realization. And I know that a lot of people don't want it. Because it's, uh, some people, they realize how difficult it is and they run away. They have to face the guardian or the threshold and then they, they can't face that... Uh, So, many people like to follow the moon, like in the opera. But those who want to succeed in initiation are few. But if, you want, if you're filled with inspiration and longing, we have to feed it daily so that we don't retrogress. To learn more about the knowledge covered in this lecture, we invite you to study the books available through Glorian Publishing or GnosticTeachings.org. You can also view free online courses, lectures, transcriptions, and articles available at ChicagoGnosis.org. All of this is made possible by the support of listeners like you. Have you benefited from this knowledge? Help others by making a tax-deductible donation at chicagognosis.org. We thank you for listening. We hope that these lectures aid you in developing your complete and divine potential. May all beings be happy. May all beings be joyful. May all beings be in peace.